the Oxfordshire News Podcast from Jack FM, digging deeper into the stories that matter to Oxfordshire. Hello there, it's Joe here from the news team at Jack. And in this episode, we're talking all things climate change, because in case you haven't heard, there's this tiny little conference going on at the moment called COP26. I say tiny, it's got some really huge names from all over the world attending and it's happening right here in the UK. So what's it all about? Well, the world is getting warmer because of emissions caused by humans. We all know that. We're seeing more extreme weather events like floods and heat waves and the past decade was the warmest on record. Governments agree that urgent action is needed. So presidents and prime ministers from all over the world are going to be reporting back on progress at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. And hopefully there'll be some new decisions on how to cut emissions. So what's on the agenda? Leisha McKenna from News has been taking a look at this for us. 2021 is thought to be the make or break year for climate, as the window for opportunity to limit global warming to under one and a half Celsius is diminishing. COP26 is particularly important to the UK because, well, we're hosting it. In 2009, richer countries responsible for the most emissions pledged to raise $100 billion per year by 2020 to help poorer countries, but they missed the target. So the issue of climate finance will likely be pivotal to the success of this year's conference. Also on the agenda over the two weeks are things like speeding up the switch to electric vehicles and accelerating the phase out of coal. So building a cleaner, greener future, as the government says. And COP26 has some pretty high profile people on the attending list, including US President Joe Biden, climate activist Greta Thunberg, who hasn't been very optimistic about the conference achieving anything, and even the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. But some key players say they won't be coming, including China and Russia's president. Oh, by the way, in case you're wondering what COP actually stands for, it's not climate something something. It stands for Conference of the Parties. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So thanks, Google. Now, we asked you lot on Twitter at News what you think is the biggest or first thing we should be doing to tackle climate change. Most people chose quite simply buy less and waste less. Over a quarter voted for less car trips and flights and almost 10% said we should be eating less red meat, which nicely leads to our first interviewee. I completely agree with the Queen that we have had an awful lot of talk about this, but so far not nearly enough action. That has got to change. I think young people increasingly recognise the urgency of taking action But the reality is that we cannot wait for another generation or two to pass for young people to be in positions of power and influence to change the food system. That's Susan Jebb, a professor of diet and population health at Oxford Uni. She's responding to the Queen revealing recently that she was irritated by climate change in action. And the Queen, of course, won't be attending COP26. She's got to sit this one out on doctor's orders. But Susan Jebb will be closely watching the conference and her point is simple. We eat too much and we need to stop. People are now beginning to consider the environmental impact of the food that they eat. We're hearing a lot about reducing our consumption of meat and dairy because we know that keeping livestock actually has a a big environmental print. 
in Britain, some of our meat is some of the most sustainable produced in the world, but it still uses uh, far more water and far more land, produces greenhouse gas emissions, which um, are contributing to the climate emergency. Oxford University has done all sorts of studies around food and the impact on climate change, and there's lots of information kind of coming at us. Would you say there's ever a bit of confusion at all about what people should be doing and, and how much they should be doing as individuals? It's often easy for individuals to sort of feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. There are things that we need governments to do to reset the food system. But whilst we're waiting for that, we shouldn't shy away from the things that we can do. And I tend to say to people that there are three things. The first is actually the most obvious, and that's about not wasting food. Every piece of food that we waste has essentially wasted all of the environmental resources that went into producing it. The second thing is not eating too much, because if you're eating more than you actually need, it's not good for your personal health. But again, we've used environmental resources that we didn't have to spend to produce those excess calories. And then the third one, which is perhaps the most difficult and the most challenging to the way we eat, is to reduce our consumption of meat and dairy products because the environmental impact of livestock production is much greater than almost any other other part of the feed system. By the way, that will be good for health too, so we get a personal win, but it will also be good for the environment. Some people might be thinking, okay, but how much? How do I know how much less meat I need to be eating or how much dairy to cut out? And is there a set amount or actually is it just do what you can? There's a great debate that goes on amongst behavioural scientists as to whether we should be setting people very stretching goals so everybody works harder to achieve that and we maximise progress. Or whether if we tell people that they should be having you know, very little meat, maybe only once or at most twice a week, does that just seem so unachievable that it becomes too hard and we forget about it and move on to something else? I think what we need to remember is that every uh, reduction you make is worthwhile because if everybody was doing that, it all starts to add up. And the second thing is also thinking carefully about the sustainability and the, if you like, the environmental credentials of the purchases that we make. Now, that's tricky because it's hard to know often, but in general, meat which has been uh, produced in Britain is going to be much more sustainable than meat which is, is imported from overseas. How do you think the food industry is doing to kind of help us achieve these changes? There's been an absolute explosion of new plant-based products, so it's easier than ever before to have a diet which contains less meat. But there is more they could do. For example, in things like ready meals, we could see them using um, other things other than meat, perhaps putting more vegetables in there as well, and making the, the plant-based alternatives as interesting and exciting as, as the meat offerings. If you think about restaurants and canteens, for example, there is always a plant-based option, but sometimes it's sort of hiding away at the bottom of the menu. Well, let's get that up front. You know, let's have the vegetarian option as the chef's choice of the day, because we know that will encourage more of us to try it. A recent Oxford Uni study actually found that daily meat consumption in the UK has dropped by just under 17% in the last decade. But the researchers also warned that that wasn't enough to meet our climate targets. And now speaking of plant-based options being up front, well, demand is growing for more of them in supermarkets and restaurant menus. 
And one person who's jumping on the bandwagon is Georgia Gallagher. She's just launched an exclusively plant-based supper club in Wheatley in her own home. Table 13 is all about locally sourced food and drink. They even ferment their own waste citrus fruit to use in cocktails. Now, Georgia wanted to stress that they're not trying to turn people vegan. They just want to point out that plant-based doesn't need to be boring. What I'm really kind of strongly trying to stay away from is the sort of stigmatism around veganism and almost the sort of baggage that can come with that title. And all I really want to do is just give an alternative uh, sort of dining experience to people. Um, My original idea that I sort of had in the infancy of this project was to perhaps sort of flip the balance of ratios between meats and vegetables. So I almost use uh, vegetables as kind of 80% of the plate and then almost have uh, supplementary meat uh, on there. And then I actually started eating fully plant-based just over a year ago. Um, So then that kind of led me down the the kind of plant-based route that I'm at now. I just think limitation in many ways can breed creativity. So by removing a lot of the elements that people would usually have in commercial kitchens you actually become more creative with the things that you have left. Would you say there's still a lot of skepticism though around what you're doing and around plant-based diets and menus being (laughs) you know just as tasty and just as interesting? Yeah 100% and from working in restaurants for many years uh, you know when you would get a ticket through or an order through that did say you know, the dreaded word vegan, it's just size across the room, um, which is something that I am trying to move away from. And uh, the sort of the way that I cook is treat the vegetables as meat. So they still go through all the same processes that you would with meat, uh, you know, marinating, grilling, roasting, charring, steaming, something that sparks the conscience. And, you know, if this is something that they can consider maybe once a week to just eat plant-based and my passion will sort of filter out hopefully throughout our diners. When you came up with this concept and with all of your planning I mean how big was the environmental factor for you in this and, and being able to do this in a way that respects the environment? For me initially it was a sort of project I went plant-based and the ecological sustainability um, factors were almost an added bonus. Now it is something that I am seeking out more ways that we can be ecologically sustainable. We are sort of growing our own vegetables in the garden, using compost from waste products that we have in the kitchen. And we are at the moment looking into, you know, using our spent coffee grounds to uh, infuse in vermouth for one of our digestive drinks. And look, I want to talk about your menu because I've seen a a sneaky peek on your Instagram of a few of the dishes that you'll be doing. And you do have ribs on the menu, but it's not the kind of ribs that many people might think of. It's um, (laughs) corn ribs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sort of a a dish that's been popping up here and there on different menus. Super simple, really. Take the corn, cut it down the middle vertically, and then you almost treat it like a kind of triple cooked chip, uh, a double frying process with some resting in between. It's super sweet and crunchy. Uh, And then just on top of that, we have a seasoning of uh, salt, uh, Negroni washed Szechuan pepper. Another one that's kind of uh, got a lot of good feedback um, on the Instagram was the mushroom tiramisu. Oh, I wanted to ask Um, you about this because I'm totally on board with the corner (laughs) and I can't get my head around the mushroom tiramisu, but I love both things. So, yeah, talk to me about how does that Uh, work? So I'd always had an idea in my head that I wanted to do sort of vegetables in desserts. Mushroom, you know, it does have a really kind of earthy flavor um, especially in powder form you kind of really rump up that earthiness and then kind of matched with coffee dark cocoa 
the flavors to me kind of all made sense in my head. So I had to play around with different recipes. Now we have a porcini infused sort of sponge that's then soaked with a little bit of almond liqueur on top, some cocoa nibs, uh, and then a kind of really dark, luscious uh, coffee caramel. Uh, and then on top of that, a vegan-style mascarpone foam. Just to finish, you have the cocoa and set powder. You kind of get this initial kind of aroma of the mushrooms, which I think when you put it down, everyone's a bit like, oh, God, mushrooms. <laughs> uh, but then as you work your way through, you kind of get the sweetness uh, of the caramel, kind of moist of the sponge. So far, it's, it's gone well. So you'll have to be the judge uh, mm. when you come down. Well, I'm definitely intrigued. George's Table 13 Supper Club has just launched in the last few weeks and is now taking bookings if you're interested. Now, there's huge pressure on world leaders to take bold actions needed to slash greenhouse gas emissions at the conference this year. Just recently, the UK government announced £5,000 grants as an incentive for people to switch from a gas boiler to an eco-friendly ground source heat pump which could also help reduce our energy bills. But another Oxford Uni professor says the government also needs to look at offering incentives for people to install solar panels on top of their homes to help make the whole process more affordable, basically. Up next is Henry Snaith, who says developments in solar energy or renewable energy will offer cheaper energy. Where we're at at the moment, in fact, the cost of generating electricity from renewables energy, even in the UK, is cost competitive with mainstream producing um, electricity from either coal or gas-fired power station. One of the challenges is that it's um, not sunny all the time, it's not always windy. The other aspect in terms of cost, and this is really related to the research we're doing at Oxford University, there's massive opportunity to still significantly improve photovoltaics, improve solar power generation through looking at new technologies. So we've been developing a new type of material called perovskite, and this has a possibility to generate much higher efficiency than the standard materials you use today, which 95% of solar modules are made out of silicon, the same material that's used in computer chips. And the cost and production of the new perovskite technology will at first be similar to the silicon, but it has prospects to become cheaper. But the most important thing is we've got prospects over the next 10 to 20 years of actually doubling the power output of PV modules, which will make them very much more cost effective. Mm. And is that one of the main things for you when you're looking at creating and commercialising solar technology and uh, renewable energy, really? It, does it all, always come down to cost? It ultimately comes down to cost. Apart from the environmental consequences, people don't care how their electricity is generated. All consumers want electricity as cheaply as possible. In terms of the the sort of companies deploying solar farms, they want to be able to make as much profit as possible. And to do that, they need to have the revenue from selling the electricity cheaper than the cost of producing it, obviously, and the bigger difference, the the more profitable that industry can be. So if we can produce more megawatt hours or gigawatt hours of electricity from deployed solar from a given solar farm, that's more revenue to the solar farm installers. Our government, all governments, I suppose, do you think they are ambitious enough and serious enough about this transition, working with the private sector on that? There's been a lot of momentum, and of course, the COP26 conference has really crystallized this, but there's irrefutable evidence that the cost of not acting 
and not reducing our carbon emissions will cause you know devastating impact financially and in many other aspects there's this sort of lack of ambition or lack of realization is that solar energy isn't just and renewable energy isn't just about producing electricity for the UK there's a massive opportunity and actually developing technologies that can then help the rest of the world also transform to to zero carbon net zero carbon generation do you think the last few weeks and months with the whole kind of gas price fiasco i suppose and the media attention on that maybe will have any impact on us looking at renewable energy options it could have an impact either way the point i'd like to make is that you can produce gas you can produce hydrogen from renewable electricity and in fact this has to be part of the future future mix of the energy system where we produce the power from from photovoltaics and wind but we need to be able to store and redistribute that power when we need it in a very simple way that works it's relatively expensive at the moment but a simple way that works is just to electrolyze water produce hydrogen and store that hydrogen and then feed that into either gas-fired power stations or into the grid supply of hydrogen. So this is so-called green hydrogen, but there needs to be much more effort on actually mobilizing industry to, to set up, you know, the big infrastructure required to generate green hydrogen. What do you think listeners should be and could be doing to play their part? If listeners can afford to do this, then they should be installing photovoltaics on their rooftops in their houses. This is very cost effective and especially with the uncertainty of future electricity prices you can have a situation where you offset most of your electricity cost i think that the government should really look back into how can we encourage domestic houses and individuals to install photovoltaics maybe it's a loan system where it's paid for up front and you pay it back over the seven years so your actual payment out for electricity doesn't really change but who you pay does change and you're buying your solar modules so at the end of that period of time you then have no more payments and you end up with free electricity free electricity sign me up like he says, solar panels on your rooftops is the way to go if you can afford the setup cost, of course. But what else could we be doing inside or outside our homes? Kathy Ryan wears a number of hats, but one of them is Community Engagement Manager at the Low Carbon Hub. It's a social enterprise that's trying to prove that we can meet our energy needs in a way that's good for people and good for the planet too. We're going to need to retrofit 29 million existing homes. This is the equivalent of 10,000 homes a week or one per minute, more than one per minute, in fact. Cathy says old, inefficient housing stock needs retrofitting, and that's exactly what the Cozy Homes Oxfordshire project is doing. So let's find out more. Here's some of our chat with Leisha. Up to 20% really of all the carbon emissions in the UK come from the way we heat and power our homes. Heat is emitted and lost through drafty walls, the roof, um, ill-fitting doors and windows and, and through the floor as well. So heat is just disappearing out of our homes and then we need to have the heating on for longer in order to keep them warm. Cozy Homes Oxfordshire uses what's called a fabric first approach, which means that the whole fabric of the house is made airtight so that you're not losing heat through all the leaky, drafty walls and doors and that the heat is locked into the house. Do you think that there's enough incentives for people to be making this change? 
We have 37 low carbon community groups who are members of the Low Carbon Hub and 12 of those are what we call community advocate groups who are motivated by the environment and reducing carbon emissions and reducing the effects of climate change. But they also want to have lower bills as well, lower fuel bills. In terms of financial incentives, the government last week, as I'm sure you know, published their long-awaited heat and building strategy, which includes plans to ban the sale of new gas boilers in 2035. Under the boiler upgrade scheme, which will come into play next March at the end of the renewable heat incentive, they'll be offering grants of £5,000 to help householders switch from a gas boiler to a heat pump. And the funding will provide around 90,000 heat pumps for the three-year period that it runs. But the target in the government's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution was to install 600,000 heat pumps by 2028. So there's quite a shortfall there. There could definitely be more of a financial incentive to help homeowners make the transition. Ryan there who says there is big demand for retrofitting homes. Over 600 people have actually registered with the Cozy Homes Oxfordshire service since it launched in 2019. So uh, they'll be getting help with all of the measures needed to make their homes as near carbon neutral as possible. And now we're going to head back to Leisha for this next bit as she digs a bit deeper into some of the key things we could all be doing a bit more of to help stop global warming. Eat less meat. It really is that simple. The average carnivore diet produces 7.2 kilograms of carbon dioxide a day, almost twice as much as a vegan diet. Livestock is responsible for around 15% of the world's emissions. And according to researchers at Oxford University, adopting a vegan diet is one of the best ways to reduce your impact on the environment. Travel by car and plane less. Okay, this one might not be quite as easy for some of you, but the coronavirus pandemic proved just how much vehicle pollution adds to our carbon footprint. During various lockdowns in 2020, UK greenhouse gas emissions fell by 8.9%, and that's the biggest drop since records began in 1990. The government is banning any new petrol and diesel cars from 2030, But before then, how about getting the bus or dusting off that bike? Use social media, of course. You'll see that climate change activists have used stuff like Twitter and Instagram to make their campaigns go global. But you don't need to be Greta Thunberg to advocate for climate change. And why not join a campaign group while you're at it? Finally, reuse don't just recycle. Transporting and processing waste for recycling requires a lot of energy, which means higher CO2 emissions. Reusable coffee cups, water bottles and carrier bags are all great small efforts you can make on this one. Plus, how about upcycling stuff you don't want? It could even save you a bit of cash with your Christmas shopping. Thanks, Leisha. Now to a new project happening locally, which could provide a nature-based solution to climate change. Wildlife has been flocking to this new wetland home in Oxfordshire, created by the Earth Trust. And Jane and Ian from the charity told me all about how wetland habitats could help the environment. There's quite a lot of exciting and novel elements to this project. Um, The first bit is that it's a partnership of um, landowners and farmers working together. So there are three different landowners, um, uh, which includes the Earth Trust, Hurst Water Meadow Partnership and Church Farm Partnership as well. And the really 
interesting bit behind that partnership and why it's so important to get multiple landowners is so that you get that scale. We're talking about something that's significant, not just for Oxfordshire, but for beyond Oxfordshire and, and right down the rivers Tame and Thames. The Earth Trust is actually based in um, in a triangle. It, we've got a big farm that's 500 hectares that sits between um, Digcote, Wallingford and Abingdon. And we're partnering with our local landowners and charities to develop something that's really significant for the future of wetlands in this country. The most fascinating thing is that the wildlife started to take hold almost immediately, almost as soon as the machinery, the diggers and the people working on it had moved off. We started to see damselflies, dragonflies and all kinds of other really exciting invertebrates, the insect life taking hold straight away. Um, this summer in particular was a really, really exciting summer for dragonflies and damselflies. And it's just so fascinating to see the power and the ability of nature to reclaim spaces really quickly and really strongly. So we know that we've already seen kingfishers, uh, yesterday when I was down there there were red kites, kestrels, buzzards, sparrowhawks, that real wealth of those um, larger mammals and birds show that there's a really great building block of nature underneath it so we're really excited to be working with some partners to start measuring what impact that's going to have on nature over the coming weeks months and years ahead. For Earth Trust what we are wanting to do is to think differently about the future and create a vision give people an insight into what a sustainable future needs to look like for us which is what COP's all about the link between the climate emergency and climate change and the biodiversity crisis, our ecological crisis, is very profound. And the natural solutions we're talking about need to address those two crises and also need to address our health and well-being crises. We know we're going to have um, increasing rainfall events. We know we're going to have temperature that are going to fluctuate. These two factors will also have an impact on our habitats, our species and our landscape and our wider environment. And we need to be developing natural solutions that are going to address those huge fluctuations that we're going to see in future. Um, so one of the things that a wetland that's working hard and functioning well can do for us is to act like a sponge. It doesn't just hold on to water, it actually filters it. There's been a huge amount recently about the pollution of our rivers. And actually, if we had floodplains that were able to filter out pollutants, they would then perform this really good function for us. Our water would be healthier and cleaner. There's a real build of momentum amongst farmers and landowners. Collectively, we all know that we've got to deliver and do things quite differently. And there's a real shift over the last few years in how um, farmers share that knowledge and collaborate. Nature doesn't stop at the boundary of one person's farm. That knowledge about how nature connects and works through these ecosystems, these larger landscape scales, is something that's really important to us at the Earth Trust. That was Jane Manley and Ian Nutt, Chief Executive and Director of Programmes and Partnerships at local charity, the Earth Trust. So the government has pledged to reduce the UK's carbon emissions to net zero, which means cutting emissions drastically and absorbing as much carbon as it produces by 2050. 
We're well, going to hear now from some local campaigners. In the build-up to COP26, Leisha went down to Broad Street where Oxford Youth Strike for Climate was holding a demo. In case you missed it, here's a little snippet. They've been talking about the UN COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, where world leaders will meet to discuss climate plans for the future in about a month. Lots of people here are holding signs and banners, with one saying there's no planet B, and another saying why search for life on other planets when we can't even keep it on ours. The people here seem quite upset. I'm really angry about how much injustice there is around the world. I want the government to achieve the goals they've been saying they will. They teach us in school that climate change may be something that happens in the future, and it's not. It's already happening. After the demo, Leisha spoke to Laurie from Oxford Youth Climate. With you being obviously a youth group, do you think that climate change should be taught in schools? Yes, of course. And though there have been improvements on that bit in recent years, there's obviously still a long way to go. I've only received one or two lessons about it, and I feel like it needs to be a central part of the curriculum in quite a lot of areas, in science and geography. And why do you think it's important that we do educate children and young people from like a younger age? Well, this is going to be one of the formative issues of the sanctuary, with the effects that it will have all over the world. I think it's really important that people are aware of it from a young age so that they can confront it and think about what to do about it and what they can personally do. I feel like in some ways we have more of an impact, but in other ways we've got less of an impact. I think we can cause less actual disruption to people's lives, but missing school is genuinely, I think, making people think about what's happening. And have you missed any school? Yeah, I've missed probably adds up to about 20 hours of school over the last few years. They've generally been somewhat supportive, but I've definitely noticed that recently they've been getting less so because it's become less novel. And now Lucy, let's hear a little from her. She founded Oxford for Nature and told us more about the changes she's calling for. Things like transport, that we have net zero carbon transport and also housing, that we don't build on greenfield sites immediately, but start with reusing what we have. All these solutions need to be affordable to everybody, regardless of socioeconomic background, and not just something for the wealthiest. You carry out protests in Oxford. Do you think it makes a difference and maybe helps get the message out by doing it physically? I do, and I also think it raises awareness for the general public because a lot of people feel powerless, and if they see that other people are doing something, they realise that they can do something too, and you can write to your councillors and you can speak out and people are listening. You know, the local councils and businesses and universities, do you think that we're doing enough on a local level? No, absolutely not. I think a lot of organisations are waking up to climate change and they're setting targets, but a lot of the time there's not a lot of action behind it. There's still a lot of investment in fossil fuels and a lot of these um, sort of organisations like the university or like the council are getting their wealth from the fossil fuel industry and are also not doing enough locally to change their own approach um, to how they respect the environment. Divesting from fossil fuels absolutely is a must. And then also thinking about how people, for instance, will access your business, how they might travel to your business, what your own carbon footprint is. There are really lots of things that can be done. But I think it helps if sort of overarching bodies like the council or like the university make it easier for smaller businesses and organisations to carry out those policies. You've said about the UK and European countries doing more to set better targets. And do you think that it's up to us to lead on this? 
I think it is. At the same time, a lot of the poorer and less well-off countries are actually doing more than we are. And I think that's really quite disgraceful because a lot of the um, carbon emissions have come from the Western world. And they've come from our industrialization. And it's really for us to start helping less well-off countries to deal with the effects of what we've done. Lucy makes an important point there, which many of our interviewees have actually echoed, about how wealthy countries need to take responsibility and lead the way on climate change. Now, a study out recently, which Oxford Uni's been involved with, the Emission Gap Report, it's called, claimed that the G20 net zero pledges are weak and they're not backed by action. So Dr. Leisha Shipper is an Oxford researcher who's been investigating why people are so vulnerable to climate change in low income countries, especially. What are the impacts on their futures and what strategies could help them adapt? Let's find out. So one thing that we have recently looked at is a review of different adaptation projects that were funded by different kind of groups. So either by countries, individual countries like the UK or Germany, or also by these large funds that exist, so specifically to to fund climate change work. And what we found is that in many cases, these projects, although they're supposed to help people to adapt to climate change, so help them to adjust to this whatever drier or wetter, there's evidence that a lot of these projects are making people worse off. The projects are not taking into account other kinds of context, contextual issues or involving local people in the design and implementation. So that's why I'm interested in trying to understand sort of what's, what is actually driving that underlying sensitivity and vulnerability to climate change. I know you mentioned initially about the role of science in informing policy, but also just from, like you say, the local communities that will be affected by those policy changes. Yeah, exactly. And what I'm interested in is trying to see, well, how do we amplify voices of people who are on the ground so that it's not just sort of a large bureaucratic process of providing development assistance funding, for example, that overtakes the actual needs on the ground. When you look at it from a research perspective, from an academic perspective, you see that already we have imbalances. So we don't have a good gender balance in among men and women, for example, who are doing research. We don't have a nice um, or a good balance in terms of ethnicity. So we don't have a lot of ethnic minorities in the UK, for example. And also there is an imbalance in which disciplines get to speak more and seem to be more interesting to the media and also to decision makers. And often what's happening is it's the natural sciences, so the hard sciences, the modelers and so on, whose voices seem to be standing out more, even though they don't work with a sort of local level. So what happens is we miss that those those voices on the ground. But are you worried then in that sense that whatever kind of comes out of that conference won't necessarily be pushing us in the right direction, I suppose? And what are you kind of hoping it will achieve? I mean, let's just say it's COP26, right? So we've had 26 of these conference of parties over the since the, the convention, the UN Framework Convention, entered into force in 1994. So on the one hand, you could say, well, the convention process was set up with a completely different set of of issues at hand, because when they set up the convention, they thought that they could actually manage to control the greenhouse gas emissions uh, pretty quickly. It turns out, of course, that governments were very slow to do that. And of course, it's also much more 
difficult. Sources of greenhouse gas emissions are more than they had anticipated as well. So we kind of have this instrument that we're trying to apply to a, a world, the context that is, is different from when it was initially set up. So I think, you know, we shouldn't be too too hopeful for what COP26 can do in terms of actual policy. But every single time we have these conferences, it raises awareness, for instance, the media, and, and also now normal people, citizens, are interested in this topic. And every time that helps to say, hey, this is a real global issue that we need to think about. Lisa Shipper there, who says she wants to ensure the voices of people on the ground are heard in conferences like COP26 when we're talking about climate action and policy. Now let's talk money because climate finance is expected to be a hot topic at the summit. But what does that mean? Oxfam's policy advisor on climate change, Lindsay Walsh, can help us with this one. Kind of means different things to different people. Like you'll hear like there's kind of like the private finance side and, and that's not what we work on. We're, we're much more like the public finance being committed by the like governments. So this is really seen as like a cornerstone of climate talks and really like a foundation of trust between developed and developing countries. So one of the main pieces within that is this 100 billion commitment that was uh, made all the way back in 2009 by developed countries um, saying that they would mobilize 100 billion per year to developing countries to help them mitigate and adapt to climate change by uh, 2020. Um, so yeah, agreed all the way back in 2009 and we don't have figures for 2020 yet, but we're pretty certain it, it was not met. Um, and we know for sure that in 2019, they were 20 billion short of this, of this 100 billion goal. So um, a big priority for us is that firstly, for them to deliver on this as soon as possible. Um, and also to make up for any like shortfalls after 2020 where they don't meet the 100 billion. So that's like the scale of the, of the climate finance that's promised. But uh, another big issue for us would obviously be the quality of the finance. So there's so many little mm-hmm. sub-bits of this, I need like an hour to discuss it all. But one of it is that half of the climate finance needs to go towards adaptation. And, and this was agreed at Paris in 2015, but currently like nowhere near half is going towards adaptation. It, it is getting better over the years, but it's disproportionately focused on, on mitigation. And this also kind of comes with um, loans versus grants. So we would really strongly advocate for climate finance coming in the form of grants that don't have to be repaid. But more and more, we're seeing that it's being put forward in the forms of, form of loans, which is completely unfair because countries shouldn't be burdened with the debt for having to adapt to a crisis that they mm. hardly contributed to. But I suppose just to caveat all that and put it into perspective and say that the need for climate finance in developing countries for them to mitigate and adapt is in the trillions like that's needed so this 100 billion is is really like just a drop in the ocean of what's actually needed locally there's some really ambitious plans for tackling climate change back in january 2019 oxford actually declared a climate emergency it then held the uk's first citizens assembly on climate change later that year and 90% of people who attended agreed that the UK government's target to reach net zero carbon by 2050 wasn't ambitious enough. They decided that Oxford should try and achieve it sooner than that. So the City Council itself has pledged to reach net zero by 2030, but it also set out what it calls a roadmap. 
an action plan, basically, for how Oxford as a whole will achieve net zero by 2040. The world's first zero emission zone is being created in Oxford, of course. Electric vehicle charging points are popping up all over the county now, but there's lots more to do. And like Boris Johnson says, the clock is ticking. So what are Oxfordshire's businesses doing to reduce their carbon footprints? Well, BMW have around 5,000 people working for them at the mini plant in Cowley. And naturally, they've got some ambitious goals from supply chain production to the cars customers drive around in. Leisha spoke to Greg Stevens, the Environment Protection and Quality Manager, and Sue Orme, Environmental Management Expert at the mini plant. So we help advise the company on all matters from sort of biodiversity all the way through to the hot topic of the moment, which is energy and climate change. So I do a similar thing, but looking after our distribution centres. Greg, are you able to give me a couple of examples of things that you work with to maybe reduce the energy? BMW's been really focused on on the topic of energy reduction and CO2 emissions for, for, for many, many years. And Plant Oxford, we've done a, a lot. So our, over the past 10 years, we've cut our energy consumption by about 20%. And if I look at CO2, then we've reduced that even further, so by about 60%. So adjusting the processes that, that we have to build the vehicles and also investing in some of the infrastructure. We have in the last five years, We've invested more than 11 million uh, euros. We've done 44 individual sort of energy projects, and that saved in total 52 gigawatt hours of, of energy, which is just a huge amount of energy. That's about equivalent to about 3,400 homes. What's the importance of, of doing this? And are other businesses doing as much as you guys? The focus on energy for me is, is just so important because it's connected to that real global topic of climate change. And of course, BMW is a large company and so we're able to you know, put a bit more resource into these things. But each company, each person can do their individual bit. And it's about making space for that, for that conversation um, on climate and energy and these topics. Sue, Georgina told me a bit about the waste efficiencies that you deal with. And I just wanted to ask a bit a bit about the battery recycling. Yeah, it's a really, really hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Um, and everybody's focusing on electric vehicles because of obviously they're, you know, we're turning over to purely electric in this country. And the topic of the electric vehicle battery, the energy that goes into it and things like that it is is long discussed. Electric vehicles seem to have crept up on us and these EV batteries do seem to have crept up on society very quickly. We're a member of a collaborative project in the UK called Recovers um, and the aim is to develop a new circular supply chain or, or circular system for electric vehicle batteries in the UK. At the moment we don't have any true recycling facilities in the UK. The process is of repair and re-engineering existing batteries to make them more repairable in the first instance if you like very much as part of this project recycling is a last resort so it really is the bottom of the pile as far as we're concerned we need to keep these batteries in the system for as long as possible just to touch a little bit on the mini have either of you driven an electric mini yes go on go on to sorry you can tell we're excited about it (laughs) no they are amazing um have you ever driven a mini at all Oh, so this is why I was so excited for this interview, because my first ever car was a Mini 1. Oh! <laughs> uh, take your Mini 1, 
ramp up the fun by about <laughs> tenfold. They're so zippy. They're amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's got a real go-kart feel, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's such a pleasure to drive. What, one in four of the cars that go through Oxford manufacturing now are electric minis, Greg? That's so, exactly right. Stupidly popular. Not long now until we see Leash whipping around in an electric mini then. And now we're coming towards the end of this episode. So let's just take a moment and crack open one of these. Because Oxford-based Tap Social Movement has joined Toast Ale and 23 other breweries all over the UK and Ireland to brew a brand new beer from Waste Bread. They're trying to draw attention to food waste and the climate crisis. Tap Social's offering is called In Deep Water. I like it. And here's the director, Matt Elliott, to tell us more about it. Taking some waste uh, food, in this case bread, um, and replacing some of what would normally be brewer's grain going into um, the beginning of a batch of any brew. Take some of that grain out and replace it with bread instead. Uh, because really what you're doing is normally you'd use your barley and you know, perhaps some oats or various other kind of grains that you might put in from time to time. Normally all you're doing is at the beginning of the process, you're making a big kind of hot porridge and you're extracting the sugar from those grains. What you can do instead, put some bread in and you get a slightly different extract and it changes a few things along the way. You know, that's a, it's an alternative and it's something that we're kind of, to, this series is all about trying to raise awareness that that's an option. And, you know, it's one of the many, many small things that perhaps um, brewers and anyone else can be doing to, to do their bit. And lots of other breweries signed up to this as well, didn't they? But what's your kind of offering like? What's it called? What does it cost? All that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it's 3.6%, nice kind of easy drinking one. But just since we're coming into winter, so we decided we'd do something a little bit darker. It's a, it's a red, kind of nice, kind of ruby red uh, IPA. And we've used a couple of dry hops in there that um, we put in towards the end of the process to give it a nice kind of aroma. Those ones which we've not used before. So it's a bit of an experiment for us and it's come out really nicely. The idea is that these beers are all being launched around about the time of the, uh, the COP26 Climate Summit. So we'll be having our beer and then a couple of other guests from some of the other breweries that have been involved pouring in each of our venues. So if you want to try and try ours or, uh, or any of the others, do pop on down to one of our venues and you can try them there. There's also, you can buy the whole box with all of the different beers from uh, all 25 breweries that got involved. There's 26 beers and 25 breweries. You're not just selling your, your waste beer bread either, are you? Because I understand that you also got together with some of those breweries involved just to actually write to the government. And all right, actually, it was more of an open letter, wasn't it? Urging kind of leaders all over the world to tackle the climate emergency. Yeah, that's right. And and obviously the, the sales of the beer, I should say, are all, um, there's a charitable aim to this. So hopefully if all goes well and we sell, a, sell all of the boxes, um, then there'll be collectively, there'll be about £65,000 worth of, uh, of uh, charitable funds, which will be raised for various initiatives protecting kind of tropical rainforests and then also something uh, working on uh, UK soil health. But yes, we, um, along with this series, there was this open letter which was written trying to get our collective voices together and demonstrate that you know that sometimes even though we're as competing breweries we're often in competition um but actually getting together and doing something for the for the greater good is sometimes the way to go so great initiative beer made out of surplus bread to help tackle the climate crisis and i think it really goes to prove that uh, every business and every industry and every person has a part to play and an interest in all of this so there's an awful lot of work to do now we're going to just end the episode by throwing it back to some of our Oxfordshire experts and voices because we asked all of them what they want to see tackled at COP26. 
if they could pick one thing, I suppose. And it might not surprise you that no answer is the same. For governments around the world to acknowledge the impact of food production on the environment and to think collectively about how we are really going to restructure the global food system. Very few countries, certainly not the UK, are self-sufficient in food. I don't know if this will happen or not, but I would like to see a national retrofit strategy that would detail a national skills and training programme to upskill and train existing contractors, but also really help with apprenticeships for young people with specialist retrofitting skills, because the skills for retrofitting are different to the skills needed for building a new build. We want to see commitments from all countries to reduce their carbon targets. I mean, that's the main thing. But what we definitely want to see is a, an appreciation that renewables can actually generate you know, the majority, if not all, of our power needs. And we need to set up an infrastructure that can support that. I hope all of the countries involved will make a lot better pledges for their carbon emissions, but also that they actually come up with plans of action to how they're going to meet those targets. Because, for instance, in the UK, we now have quite good targets, but um, there's no policy which is actually going to support us reaching those targets. So it's just talk and little action at the moment. There are some real big challenges around kind of how we generate our energy, both in the UK and overseas. I'd like to see some really bold policy making around making sure that we're kind of encouraging and investing really heavily in renewables, but probably most importantly, kind of taking away some of the financial support that currently still goes to fossil fuels and extraction and kind of the emissions that that entails. Another thing that is really important is to ensure that there's more commitment to the funding that's needed to support developing countries in order to transition both in terms of adapting to climate change but also to transition to something that's more carbon neutral. We do need to get some hard and fast commitment resulting in funding and actions to minimise the climate change, to try and hit that 1.5 degrees. I mean, we're really lucky BMW, our chairman of the board, Oliver Zipser, is pushing the charge on this regardless. to Henry, Lucy, Matt, Susan, Lisa, Cathy and everyone who helped us understand climate change and why we need to do something about it now. It was a long episode, so thanks for sticking with us. If you've made it all the way to the end, good on you. There's no prizes, I'm afraid. But we love a bit of feedback, so let us know what you thought of this episode. Tweet us at JackFM News.